Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. This morning, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to my typical three points in the conclusion. I'm going to just walk through this gospel text, just kind of verse by verse. So if you want to follow along, this would be a good Sunday to take out your Bible and do so. We're in Matthew 16, so I'd encourage you to follow along as we move through verse by verse this passage. Matthew 16, and we're beginning at verse 13. I want to set the tone by quoting Dorothy Sayers, who I established at the first service is, in fact, a woman. I had a brain fart. I was like, is, is Dorothy a man or a woman suddenly? But uh, who, who's read Dorothy Sayers? Apparently a crime writer? Yeah? Okay. Um, this is what she says about Jesus. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man or woman. And the plot pivots upon a single character. And the whole action is the answer to a single central problem. What think ye of Christ, in her words? What think ye of Christ? What do you think of Christ? That's the question of this sermon, really. What do you think of Christ? You know, it is a a question that you and I can come back to time and time again, especially maybe if you are like me, and that you have an insatiable desire to have your questions answered. And there are a lot of really good questions. (laughs) Questions like, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Why do the good die young? Why is suffering so random and so awful? What about hell? What about sexuality? What about other religions? What about, what about? And these are all really good questions. Questions that the church and this church, I hope, is a safe place to thoughtfully ask and wrestle with and explore. But every once in a while, I think we just need to come up for air a little bit and come back to this central question. What do you think of Christ? What do you think of Jesus? Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, that's way up north in Gentile territory, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John, the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So they thought he was some kind of prophet because he was speaking God's words, he was doing God's deeds, so they were ready to assign him a certain level of honor. But then I wonder how might your friends and neighbors and co-workers answer this question today? I think many of them might kind of be here, ready to sort of think positively about Jesus, but not ready to go so far as Messiah. In fact, I want to take a minute for you to discuss this together. As the saying goes, if you're not comfortable doing it, just bow your head and pretend like you're praying. But talk together about who do your coworkers and neighbors and friends and people around you in Denver, maybe your peers at school, who do they think Jesus is? Go ahead, a couple of minutes. Who do your friends and neighbors and coworkers think Jesus is? So what do we think? Let me hear back from you guys. Who do the people around you think Jesus is? A source of energy, okay? What else? A good moral teacher. All right, what else? A historical figure. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, what was the last part? 
Yeah, so someone we might kind of want to follow when it's convenient. Yeah, good. So it's actually very helpful to be in touch with what those around us are saying about Jesus. You know, the disciples were aware. People think you're this, people think you're that. And then Jesus turns the question, but who do you say that I am? You know, in his book, With, Sky Jathani tells about a test that Scott McKnight, who's a seminary professor, um, gives his students every year. And the test begins with a series of questions about what Jesus is like. So, is Jesus moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party or is he an introvert? So there's 24 questions followed by a second set with slightly altered language in which the students answer questions about their own personalities, like what are they like? And the results are markedly consistent, apparently. People tend to think that Jesus is just like them. (laughs) McKnight concludes that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is often the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. McKnight's personality questionnaire confirms, welcome, Jake, come on in. Um, confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said three centuries ago. He said, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. We tend to make God in our image. Now, if this tends to be true of us who are trying to follow Christ, and it is to some degree for all of us, it's also true of our friends out there, our neighbors who are not trying to follow Christ. How does our modern, American, hyper-individualistic, maybe new age spirituality change the way we think of Christ? If you do want to know what Jesus actually is like, and not what you've made him out to be, if you want to know him, what do you do? Well, I'd say start by exploring whether or not you actually do desire that. So Aaliyah's point was, you know, maybe we just kind of want it insofar as it's convenient. But do we want to know him as he really is? What What if the Messiah isn't as we wish? What if who he is and what he's like steps on my toes or is inconvenient or or rebukes me or confronts me? Are we willing to go there? Then risk going there with Jesus in prayer. Let verse 15 become kind of a guiding prayer for you this week. Let it leap off the page where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? That's a question you could just sit with all week. You could journal about if you're a journaler, just process it in prayer. Who in my heart of hearts do I say that Jesus is? And this is the question of questions for us and for the church and for the world. What are we going to do with Jesus? Now, Peter gives us the answer in verse 16. It's the answer key. Simon Peter provides the answer. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Messiah is one of those Bible words, like a sign you drive past so many times you don't even really take it in anymore. It's just, you just read right over it. Messiah, what does it mean? Well, literally, Mashiach in Hebrew means anyone, students, Anointed one, yes, like King David, who was anointed king. And Jesus is the king in the line of David. He's the anointed one. And in Greek, the Greek translation of Mashiach is Christ. So Christ is the Greek, Messiah is the Hebrew, the anointed one. First, understand that this is the first time Jesus' identity as Messiah has been actually confessed. It's been editorially noted as the editor, you know, Matthew writes, but the first time on the lips of someone confessing his identity, it's the first time. And this is then the climax of the Galilean ministry, which takes up the whole central part of the book of Matthew. Jesus has been trying to reveal his identity to the disciples and to others, and they finally get it. So this is a hinge on which the whole gospel swings. Next week, Luke Elmers is going to preach on what follows, where Jesus begins to unfold the nature of his messiahship as one who's going to suffer and die and be crucified. And we're going to get there next week. 
But the, what we're going to see, and I'm going to give us a little preview, is that even the disciples here are trying to build Jesus in their own image, aren't they? A kind of Jewish nationalistic Messiah, military Messiah. Well, the Old Testament had indeed promised a Messiah to Israel. And if you put together the various strands of Old Testament expectation around what the Messiah would be, simply, very simply, Messiah, the anointed one, was a God-sent Savior and ruler of God's people. So some of you might just think Messiah, like for the one who's going to forgive and save. Yes, but he's also the one who's going to rule and judge and cleanse the temple and gather the people and defend them at all costs. So he's a ruler. Now, if I were to try to translate that language into contemporary language, you might say that Jesus as the Messiah means, first and foremost, you give him all authority. He has entire authority. He is entirely in charge. For modern folks like us, we could just say very simply, well, for everyone, Jesus is Lord. He has all authority over my life, over our church, over the church. Now, how many Denverites think of Jesus that way? Jesus is entirely in charge. He's the king of kings. You know, 60% of Denver would not identify as Christian, so the Christians are a minority in our, in our city. And for the 40% of Denverites who do identify as Christians, predominantly Catholics, how many think of Jesus as maybe more of like a, like a wealthy co-signer on a loan, sort of like an insurance policy, like Aaliyah said, like when it's convenient, I like him, but entirely in charge, able to rebuke me, able to correct me? Uh, I don't know. But Peter says what is true, that which corresponds to reality. You are the Messiah. You're the one who's entirely in charge. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. When I feel my own, um, my own construction of Jesus is out of touch with the truth, I often find myself drawn to Revelation 19, where John has a vision of the Messiah, of this Lord of lords, this King of kings, and he describes it so memorably in apocalyptic language. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What do you think of Christ? Does this image of Jesus, this Messiah King, inform your thinking? This is the King the church rallies to. And as we prepare for another election cycle, I guess the first sort of debate was, was last week with many of the GOP candidates. As we prepare for an election cycle, how many of us will be tempted to build Jesus in our own image? He's, I think Jesus is basically like me, Republican Jesus, Democrat Jesus, progressive Jesus, fundamentalist Jesus. You know, as new and old, maybe, candidates drown us in the promise, I'm the one to fix it all. I'm going to fix our country. You vote for me, everything's going to be fine. Hope in me. The church, remember, let Peter's confession remind you this morning, Jesus is entirely in charge. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one on whom our hopes rise and fall. He is not our co-signer. He's not an insurance policy. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Absolute, entire authority. 
Now, lest this imagery of Jesus as a judge who wages holy war kind of mislead us, let me say this. God's compassion is one reason that he does delay judgment and enacts it sparingly, but in the broader scope of history, judgment is necessary for repentance and for vindication. And this is maybe one of those parts of Jesus as he is that we wrestle with. Jesus the judge, yeah, he is going to judge all nations. Now, I want to say this, for the oppressed, for the victimized, for those who suffer injustice, for those who are powerless, Jesus' judgment is very, very good news. I often quote Miroslav Volf, who says that it kind of takes the quiet of a suburb for us to think about God being God without a sword, you know, because we don't have this strong sense of we need God to be our advocate. And so those who suffer are faced with a choice, take up the sword and avenge, my, and avenge myself or trust that God is going to avenge. And so, yeah, Jesus is a just judge. But nevertheless, note that in Revelation 19 and everywhere else, the army of God is not the one that does the striking down. They're behind him. Jesus teaches nonviolent retaliation, non-retaliation. Not because there's no reckoning, but because his is the reckoning to bring, not ours. For our part, we are to love, and we're to let the rest sort itself out, or let him sort it out, I guess I should say. Well, on to verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter. He says, blessed are you. It's a beatitude. Bless you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now notice in the same breath, Jesus blesses him for giving the correct answer. Well done. But he also gently humbles him. How? He says, you got it right because grace, because it was revealed to you. You didn't get it right because you're the smartest disciple in the room. You know, you got it right because God revealed it. So the difference between us in here, most of us at least, and those out there who don't know Jesus as the Messiah, it's not because we are morally superior. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're better. We're not. It's because we've received this revelation of the grace of God that he is the Messiah. Now, what do we do to receive it? That's, that's the key. Do you want to know Jesus as he is? That's the key question. They receive this revelation through proximity with Jesus through opening their hearts to the possibility of taking him at his word, to answering the question, who do you say that I am? So that's the invitation for those out there is, are you willing? Do you desire to know the truth of who Jesus is? God desires that all should come to know him through faith in Christ, everyone. But he doesn't tend to force his way in, does he? Again, the question is, are you open to knowing Jesus as he is? Will you risk responding to him? And then he goes on in verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build the church, my church, excuse me, key words, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Some translations say hell, Hades is better, it's really the gates of death. Hades is the place of the dead. So the gates of death will not prevail against it is a way of saying the church is not going to die. So we don't need to worry. The church is not going to die. His church is going to endure. So Peter, having been graced with belief as, with, uh, as in Jesus as the Messiah, He's given a new name, Petra. Petra praise, anyone? 80s rock, 80s Christian rock. Um, Petra means rock. Peter, rock, rock of the church. It's a wordplay going on. He says, I'm going to build my church on this rock. Now, some people sort of dispute. Is he building his church on Peter himself or Peter's confession? My own opinion is that the plain reading points to Peter himself. Protestants are a little bit wary. How many of you grew up in the Catholic church? 
A lot of people, yeah, so a lot of people find their way into our tradition through the Catholic upbringing. Well, Protestants worry about this interpretation because this is how a lot of Catholics defend the teaching of the papacy, that, that Peter is the first rock, and he is the rock on which the church is built, so he's the first pope, and then there's the next pope, and they've got the keys. We don't need to go there. The text doesn't say that. That's, you, could, you could pursue that argument in a different way. But where we do go is that we've just been through a series in Acts. What did we see in Acts? It was Peter's leadership over and over and over again upon which the foundation of the church was built. So Peter is responsible for helping the Gentiles come into the church. Peter's at the center of church discipline again and again in Ananias and Sapphira. And so historically speaking, Peter is the leader of the earliest church. He is the rock upon which the early church is built. Now, what do we then make of this promise in verse 19? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In the Jewish tradition, to bind was to judge a law as binding for a situation, and to loose was to judge a law as not applicable to a situation. A good example, Matthew 12, do you remember when Jesus is with his disciples, and they're hungry, so they start picking grain on the harvest? It's against the law. The Pharisees are upset. They say, Jesus, what are you doing? You're breaking the law. And Jesus' response is an example of loosing the law. He says, we've not broken the law because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So properly interpreted, I can do what I want, basically. Um, Jesus seems to be promising Peter, and by extension, the apostles, the authority to apply Torah, that is the law, and by extension, Jesus' own words now, to particular situations. They're like the, the judicial branch. You know, they, they don't create or enforce laws. They interpret them and how they, how they apply. Again, this plays out in Acts all over the place. But I do want to say that as we think about church leadership today, notice there's really one interesting application here. The weird syntax of will have been bound in heaven or will have been loosed in heaven is very awkward in English and in the Greek. So instead of Peter simply saying will be bound or will be loosed, he says will have been. And the implication is, is that Peter, the decisions he's making, they aren't then ratified by heaven. It's that Peter is receiving divine guidance to agree with heaven as he's making decisions. In other words, this is a promise through the Spirit that God is going to guide his church and the leaders of his church, especially now through Peter. And then as the argument goes, for many of us who believe in apostolic authority, that one of the ways God has guided his church is through bishops. And so, Jesus receives the authority from the Father. Jesus then gives his authority to the apostles, and the apostles then give their authority to others. Um, that's a rabbit trail. We're talking about it in our Anglican 101 class right now. So anyone in here who's in that class, they would love to answer your questions, right, about this? Now, if you want to talk about it, email me. We can talk about it some more. But then in verse 20, Jesus ends in this strange way. Jesus sternly orders the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Well, that's weird. Doesn't he want the word to get out? <laughs> Why does Jesus warn them not to talk about it? It seems that there's at least two reasons. One, in the following verses, Peter, the rock of the church, becomes Peter the Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter is tempting Jesus to a vision of being Messiah that goes around the cross. He's building the Messiah in his own Jewish nationalistic image. Conquer Rome, overthrow our oppressors, Jesus says, no, no, no. First, I must suffer and die. Peter wants the Messiah who puts Romans to shame. Jesus is the Messiah who suffers a shameful death on a Roman cross. And so before his Messiahship can be openly proclaimed, it must be understood. Eventually, fire in the eyes, sword in the mouth Jesus 
going to come as judge. But for now, Peter and the rest of us, this is a war of love. This is a war of humility. This is a war of sacrifice, not of triumphant military might. Don't get the wrong idea. I must suffer for the sake of love and sacrifice and giving my very self. Now, the second reason Jesus does not yet publicly display his messianic ID cards is that when he finally does, he's crucified very soon afterwards. And so the time, the time has not yet come. So that's why he's saying, don't talk about it. So, sisters and brothers, the question before us is simple. The text puts this question before us. What do you think of Christ? In Dorothy's words, what think ye of Christ? Do you actually want to know him as he is? Or at the end of the day, do you know deep down, I am building Jesus in my own image? Are there places maybe in your life that you're aware of that maybe you haven't fully surrendered to the fact that he is entirely in charge? What he says goes. And for those of you who don't yet see Christ as Messiah, I would invite you to consider this argument famously called the Lord, Liar, Lunatic argument from C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity is a great book to turn to if you're just finding yourself curious or cautious about Jesus but not yet committed. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be crazy, in other words. He would, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. It seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God himself, the Messiah. And for those of us, again, who already know him as Messiah, what sort of Messiah is he? Is he the sort that underwrites your decisions? Or is he the sort that can rebuke you, rebuke you as he did Peter and correct you? I want to invite you to risk going there this week with Jesus. It's a simple invitation. Just reflect deeply on verse 15. Here Jesus asks you in prayer, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And let this question, you know, let the other questions fade. Let this one rise to the top. What do you think of Christ? Father, I pray that you would lead us into all truth by the power of your Spirit, that you would give us, each of us and us as a church, a clear and accurate and beautiful picture of you as our Messiah, and to take comfort in the fact that you have our best interest in mind, that we can follow you completely, wholeheartedly, and you will lead us into deeper life, abundant life, I pray for those around us who don't know you as their God and as their Messiah, that you would be at work in our conversations, um, in our lives, in our relationships, to bring people to you and to the way of life. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.